Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Anya Doherty and Lilo Mehta from Foodsteps. Now, Foodsteps is the industry-leading provider of carbon footprint labels and sustainability assessments for food businesses. In other words, they work with some of the most innovative food companies across the UK to both track and reduce the environmental impacts of food, as well as engage customers in sustainable food stories. And so in the episode, Anya Lil and I will discuss how exactly Anya's postgrad research at the University of Cambridge kicked off the launch of the Food Steps journey, how exactly footprint assessments work in the food industry today, and some of the key challenges that still need to be solved, running one of the most extensive analyses across the entire university's catering footprint and what they found, adding carbon labels across the menu inside of the university's cafe, and how exactly that affected purchase decisions across the entire student population, and finally, the long-term impact potential for a company like Foodsteps. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Anya Doherty and Lilla Mehta from Foodsteps. Anya and Lilla, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. Really nice to be here, Pete. And thank you both. I'd love to to start with the basics. This is what we do with every episode is just setting the stage. So if, if one of y'all want to take the mic and just quickly outline what is Foodsteps? Yeah, thanks so much. So we're on a mission to transform food sustainability. We know that food is one of the major contributors to the climate crisis and global greenhouse gas emissions, as well as uh, biodiversity crisis and all the rest. So we're here to help food businesses measure and reduce uh, their impact on the environment and also to empower consumers to make more sustainable choices. So uh, we've got our carbon labels launching and we've developed a platform to yeah, massively speed up the process for food providers to start addressing yeah, the biggest problem of our time. I love it. Yeah, we've had we've had a couple guests on the show on both sides of the spectrum. We've had Just Salad, who at least are one of the first U.S. restaurant chains to pioneer carbon labels on their menu. Mm-hmm. But what what I always find interesting is if we rewind back to the pre Food Steps chapter, uh, I was doing some stalking on your LinkedIn. I saw you were doing research. If you can help us connect the dots, what were you exploring in your post grad? And what observations or findings did you make that you then parlayed into food steps? Yeah, I've always been really interested in sustainability. I knew that was what I wanted to to do. I actually started off doing my research in biochemistry. I did my undergrad uh, mostly focusing in that, but I took a course fairly randomly in environmental sciences and and sustainability. And for me, that was really the wake up moment of we're not just going to be able to solve this problem through clean energy alone. And actually, the food system really stood out to me as something very much at the center of the environmental crisis. So I made a shift into that. And it was a great time to uh, yeah be doing research uh, in Cambridge because there was an amazing team um, of, of researchers forming, looking at some of the key questions like how we 
can measure and reduce the impacts of food on the environment, which is no small challenge because it's a very complicated system, of course, and uh, and lots to be done in a short amount of time. So my work was really quite close, actually, to the university itself. So I worked with a number of the caterers and, and chefs, actually, in Cambridge, looking at the meals that they served and trying to really ask the question of what is the impact um, of this food on the environment, how can we quantify that and how can we therefore reduce it? So it was quite interesting going into those systems when no one had really done an environmental impact assessment of that food before. And that's really the work that we're continuing at Food Steps is often being the first to to speak to food companies and, and food businesses about their impact on carbon emissions and, and other environmental impacts. And it's always, yeah, quite surprising and enjoyable actually to be showing people that and the sort of light bulb moments that go off with that. Mm-hmm. Then we'll get into to some of the nitty gritty in a second. But Lilla, what I found interesting about your food step story is chapter one, you're an investment banker, cush position, mm. right? Love and life. And then either <laughs> A, Anya brainwashes you and says, you know what? Drop all this lovey-dovey cush job and join this crazy young startup that has totally undefined future, so much risk. So talk me through how yours and Anya's paths collided and then what convinced you to transition. Yeah, sure. So actually, Anya and I went to school together. So we knew each other before I was at JP Morgan enjoying the kind of investment banking life. But really what happened was I'd spent a year and a half there and just realized that longer term, both from an environmental perspective, but also just generally with my longer term like ambitions, it didn't really align with what I wanted to do. So it was just by chance I saw Anya the day after my final day and she just told me about Food Steps and I'd followed the work she'd been doing at, at Cambridge and the stuff with the carbon labeling and carbon accounting. And it all just sounded so interesting that when she offered me to like just help out at the beginning, it was just such a, a no brainer. And yeah, just it's a bit of bit of brainwashing. <laughs> it was um, yeah, it was yeah. no, it was just the, the facts kind of spoke for themselves. Like it's such an important issue for our generation. The work that Anya was doing with Food Steps was just so cool that I obviously decided that that was something I wanted to get involved with. And a year and a half later, here we are. Yeah, and I I think one thing that's you know been really nice on our journey is I really reached out to to Leela and also other friends at the beginning just saying here's this project I've started working on and we've got all, all this kind of interest and a lot of work building up do you want to just you know come and help me out for a month or something and yeah every single one of those people is now very much still part of the team and we've been together now for coming up to two years so it's been an amazing journey I and mean, I think that's the great thing about working with friends and people that you've known for a while as always that kind of strong connection and yeah we definitely feel feel like a family in our work so that's great fully brainwashed that's (laughs) (laughs) i think yeah this is the sound of a cult leader right right? Um, subconscious brainwashing going on (laughs) right Um, um yeah so what i find really interesting about just the broader footprint assessment opportunity landscape is i what's interesting is I guess both the problem and in, in, in good for companies is it feels like a lot of different companies have different theses around how footprints should be calculated. And it feels like there's very little give and take here. People have some default approach and then they have all of their these different brands they work with who 
succumb to that approach. And then brand A works with a new footprint consultancy and comes up with a totally different number. So maybe what would be helpful is if we start at the surface level, how exactly the process works. And then we could zoom in, double click further to understand what are the what are the two or three remaining question marks that are super challenging today, but you know, new technology or scaling the data set will start solving these things. But maybe just starting from level one, help the audience understand how exactly the assessment works in the industry today. Yeah, absolutely. So on a very simple level, doing a carbon footprint assessment is about taking into account all of the processes, materials, any anything that goes into a product uh, that might have a carbon footprint. So energy use, raw materials, processing, even waste at the end, calculating all of that, adding it up and coming up with uh, a final score of how many kilograms of uh, carbon dioxide equivalents that product uh, contributes uh, to the atmosphere in its life cycle. So that's sort of it on a kind of simple top level. I suppose even in, in just me explaining that now with the audience, probably get the sense that it's, it's quite a complicated picture when you actually go beneath the hood. And that's because food cuts across so many different systems. You've got farming, you've got transportation, you've got processing, you've got packaging, you've got retail, you've got consumers using that product. And then you've got finally at the end, what happens to it when you throw it away. And each one of those stages has multiple different kind of inputs um, and you know outputs. So it is no kind of simple task to really take a, a, a product mm-hmm. and come up with a carbon footprint score. We really hear what you're saying in terms of the fact that there isn't really legislation around how these things are calculated in the same way that there might be standard approaches at the moment with nutrition. And I can understand people's kind of concern or, or thinking, how do I know that this is the best way to, to calculate this footprint versus this other place which is saying I should calculate it this way but luckily there are uh, standards and protocols out there all of the work that we do is aligned to the greenhouse gas protocol standard and that sets out the best way that these footprints should be calculated so there are guidelines and and rules around what types of things you have to include what you're allowed to exclude if, if it's not significant to the footprint and I think what's really important is for a company like us is to make sure we have our own independent assessors as well because if we're working directly with food companies and saying here's your footprint by the way it's really high and you should work with us to reduce it there is that kind of conflict of 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 interest so yeah we work with independent assessors who make sure that all the calculations we're doing align to that greenhouse gas protocol but yeah to keep going on your question there are lots of challenges uh, within this but we don't think that you should be waiting to solve every single problem before going ahead with it because we don't have very long to to make such uh, Mm -hmm. radical transformations to the food systems. But just to highlight a couple of those, one of the biggest challenges is around data sharing within the food industry. All of that information on the carbon footprint of food is it's available, it's somewhere and you're the person, whether they're the person growing the food or or transporting it or or packaging it, they'll have information on the inputs and outputs. But at the moment, the whole food system isn't set up to transfer that information. So if you're an end food supplier or or manufacturer, you're not going to have access to that information further down your supply chain. And it's time consuming and it's difficult to get that data. So a lot of our work is is about tracing back the impacts of food from working with an end food supplier or manufacturer way back down their supply chain and things are getting easier and our solution is about making that uh, much more accessible and much more scalable. One of the key milestones I would say in the in the food steps journey to date is 
your work with I can't see the exact university you worked with, but you did a, a carbon land use footprint calculation across the entire university's catering footprint. And yeah. that sounds like both uh, an exceptional challenge and nightmare, digging through <laughs> all of the different puzzle pieces, trying to yeah. backtrack where all of them come from. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd love to hear, you know, walk us through that project and uh, what you found. Yeah, that so that was really the, the launch of Foodsteps and, and our journey is that I had the opportunity to work with the university and do a, a footprint assessment of yeah all the food they purchase over a three-year period. So I do joke, yeah, that when I came to the end of that, I had this decision where I thought, I'm either never going to do that again because it was so time time consuming yeah. and such a in a way just such a challenge or I thought if I am going to do that again and really go for it then I'm I'm going to get a proper team uh, together and we're going to scale it up and do it. Yeah, luckily um, and happy that I chose the second path but there <laughs> really was a moment when I came to the end of of that project where I just thought this is it's it's nail uh, bitingly difficult and just exhausting. But yeah, it it was also a fantastic opportunity. The university that we worked with, they had put in place a sustainable food policy in 2016 and it was really seen as a leader within catering at the time. They'd done loads around how they were sourcing their meat, they were reducing meat consumption, they were you know, changing how they'd source kind of their fish and, and everything. But what they didn't know was how effective was that policy in terms of its environmental impact. And that's the key question, right? You can do all of this work, but unless you actually quantify and, and go in and, and take a deeper dive, you don't know what was effective and, and you don't know what lessons you need to learn going forward. Yeah, I think when you said putting the puzzle pieces uh, together, you very much hit the nail on the head. It was, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they bought from maybe something like 50 different food suppliers and, and a few thousand different products. And all of, as I said before, it's the challenge is that the data isn't set up to do these calculation so it was pulling in everything from digital orders through to paper invoices through to literally speaking to the catering staff about what types of sandwiches they were actually making and yeah it was very it was yeah it was a big project but it was massively our, our kind of platform which we were able to launch off of and definitely a piece of work that we're still really proud of and we were able to show they reduced their their footprint by 33 percent which was amazing and that they're still very much seen as the leaders for having done uh, that policy and that piece of work before we segue off of, of that project i'd love to hear a what was the most carbon expensive product in their portfolio and b where, what was the biggest win so what was the highest impact decision they made yeah i think that that's a great question so the obvious one that does come out consistently as very high impact are ruminant products so that's beef lamb and uh, high impact dairy products but one thing which is really often overlooked we find is some of the high impact shellfish products warm water shrimp for example have a really high carbon footprint because of the way they're farmed in mangrove systems so that was an example of a, a really carbon expensive item which they had just taken the decision and said okay we, we don't want to serve this anymore because we the, the sort of the data's there the understanding's there and we want to be serving lower impact foods. I think that the, it, it really is all credit to the catering team at that university. They're very forward thinking and the people who have just in a way put their foot down and said, once the kind of information's there, we don't want to be contributing to, to this problem, to this crisis. And, and mm -hmm. they're taking a very hard line approach. So uh, we, we've got uh, yeah, a lot of respect for that. 
So I'd love to hear you go through one of the most extensive assessments in, in this particular category and you brainwash Lilla, drops her, <laughs> drops her job and comes over to the Food Steps team to, to pioneer some of the commercial development opportunities. I'd love to hear, Lilla or Anya, another project that y'all spearhead spearheaded and I, I think are currently investing in is the effects of carbon labels on the sale of different sandwiches in the cafe. And so I don't know if that project is still ongoing, but I, I'd love to hear what does the before and after look like? I can speak about my personal experience here at Just Salad, but I'd love to hear what has been the stickiness before and after of these labels with respect to the sandwiches. Yeah, so we, we actually extended it out beyond sandwiches and, and looked across all food being served at these uh, cafeterias in Cambridge. So we looked across 80,000 different uh, food choices. So that's people actually choosing food in, in a cafeteria with and without carbon labels. And our question was, you know, what impact does that have on people's decisions? And also a step slightly before that was how can we actually design a label that means something to people? If you want to just put a carbon label out there, if you're just putting a number, it's really hard for people to put that into context and actually know, you know, is that high? Is that low? What does that mean I should be choosing. So we did a lot of preliminary work testing different types of labels, trying to understand how to design them so that they're actually useful. And then once we inputted them into the cafeterias, it was really interesting as well. I was a little bit nervous before doing it actually, because sometimes when you do things in universities, either the students love them or they hate them, but whichever way it goes, you'll definitely know about it because people will shout and say their opinions. <laughs> but luckily the response was really positive. So we actually had a big kind of buzz around the university of people saying oh have you eaten in that cafeteria they got the carbon labels up and that was really exciting to to be a part of and yeah the paper will be coming out next month which we'd love to share with you and also share with the audience so it should be up on our website but i'll maybe be able to give a, a little bit of a sneak preview here which is that we did find that it had a significant effect on people's choices. So we did see that actually the food that was being purchased in the cafeteria with the labels, the overall carbon footprint was lower. And that's, yeah, really exciting and really the kind of validation that we needed and, and scientific evidence that we needed to incorporate that into Food Steps. And we're launching the label now with uh, a number of brands in the UK, which we're really excited about. And yeah, it's uh, a journey ongoing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had this ongoing thesis and Y'all have the hard data to prove this, but my guess is that, and I flip-flopped on this issue, but initially I would have thought what you said, which is if you put that a given menu item has a carbon footprint of X, that the effect on behavior is, uh, I guess, non-significant because if you can't understand the greater context, hey, is this bad? Is this number good? Then it doesn't affect your purchase decision. But I've since come to the conclusion because now I've interacted with it quite a few times at Just Salad that as long as there's comparable items, I'm looking at Just Salad's menu and I can see one that has chickenless chicken on it versus chicken versus beef and one number is higher than the other. My guess is that's probably enough. It's enough to push the average customer to at least understand that one item is quote unquote better than the other. Even if it doesn't have the broader context, hey, this decision means that 
is equivalent to cutting down one fifth of a tree. I don't know if that's actually that important. So I'd love to hear whether or not that aligns with your research or where maybe the hypothesis or thinking is a bit off the path. But what have you found as y'all have really dug deep into this, this particular area Yeah, so one thing we did find in the preliminary research that we did is that people's, if you like, the the phrase carbon literacy is a lot lower than, you know, you might expect if you're someone that kind of works in in sustainability and you come across things like carbon dioxide and, and kilograms of CO2 equivalent on a daily or weekly basis. And I think that that's a really important finding is that the average person, this is still something which is incredibly new and incredibly yeah, foreign and, and difficult to kind of place into context. So while I think on a single menu, if you did have figures that that were comparable, I think that even still sometimes having just that imagery around whether it's a kind of a planet or a leaf or whatever, we did find that actually improved people's understanding of what you were talking about rather than just having a number and, and KGCO2E. But, you know, this is just where we are at the moment. There's every chance that this will improve as we go along. But I, I think our thesis and our, and our hypothesis, at least from the testing, is that you do need to have quite a lot of context at the moment because otherwise you do risk leaving some people out of that out of mm-hmm. that story and out of that mm-hmm. narrative because it's just something that's quite new. But yeah, and having said that, all of this is so much in, in its infancy that I think there's just a lot to be proven, right? As it's fantastic seeing brands like Just Salad come out with their carbon footprint. There's obviously Oatly and, and we're releasing carbon label with an, a number of brands as well. I think the jury's out and what we should all be doing is paying attention to what the responses are and what we can learn from all these different approaches because it's something that, that is so new that I think it's a little bit too early to say. At the same time, within the supermarket context, I, I think it will be a while before it's a commonplace thing to have a, a carbon label on, on lots of products. So if you just have a few products labeled for, from our experience, it it does help to contextualize that number rather than just throwing it, it out mm-hmm. um, if, if you don't have anything to anchor it on. Mm. And just actually to add on that, Anya, I think one thing that's really interesting is everyone has something in particular that they find interesting, whether it's a kind of rating or the number, or even like you said, Peter, like having the equivalent in number of trees or number of smartphone charges. Sometimes that's the thing that people latch on to. Other times it is the the rating or the number itself. So it's just yeah, like you said, Anya, there's so much um, that it's still too early to tell exactly what the main important piece of information is. Got it. So we, we've danced around the topic, but I, I'd love to to get some more clarity around what is the Food Steps business model? What's in the pipeline? Do y'all have a software product coming out that's going to help brands with menu labeling? Yeah, what What's in the pipeline that will make Food Steps sustainable long term? Yeah, so we're really excited. Um, on the 5th of May, we're launching our Foodsteps platform, which is a software tool specifically for restaurants and catering companies that will allow them to footprint their entire menu range and really easily uh, generate carbon labels. So that's something we're launching with um, other universities in the UK, some of the, the biggest catering companies in the UK. So we're really excited about that and the potential that we'll have to onboard 
lots of smaller restaurants, uh, pubs uh, and some of the, the bigger chains as well. So it's a catch-all uh, platform and yeah, we're really excited about the impact that will have. In the meantime, we are working as well with actual food products and, and manufacturers. And those are more bespoke life cycle assessments where we, we do the labeling on a per product basis. And our, our platform is also able to handle uh, those products as well. Yeah, we're. I, I think one of the big things here is that currently it's just too expensive and it's too it's too time consuming and, and difficult for food companies to measure and reduce their carbon footprints. With our platform and software, it's about making that scalable and accessible to um, as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, because as I think I said at the beginning, there's not a lot of time to to get going on this. The faster and, and, and more scalable we can get things out there, the better, I think. Hell yeah. And I imagine there's this nice compounding benefit as you work with more brands who share the same suppliers, then you can effectively autofill, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the food kind of su- supply system at the moment is such a complicated web of, it's just, it's not all coherently managed to do these type of calculations, as I said. But yeah, it's really exciting when we have worked on a project and then we go to the next project and we think, oh, we have, we've come across these 20 food items before and, and we can now do this kind of instantaneously. And there are huge wins to be made in, yeah, kind of tapping into that wider ecosystem. So that's been really fun mm. as well. You start to also, I think, just uh, you have this kind of data inbuilt within you after a while. You're, oh, this kind of salad, I know what that is. Oh, this item... You're like Anya, I've heard you talk about the impacts of like tomatoes or ketchup and you can know that off by heart. So it's definitely autofill in the brain as well. I'm curious before we segue to the bookends is the macro environment in the UK and Europe more broadly versus the States. Here, there is some downward public pressure. Corporates should be doing more. But I know across the Atlantic, there is actually some downward legislative pressure that's mm. requiring corporates and brands to make a stand, to be transparent around the footprint. So I'm curious, what is the state of policy where y'all operate that's requiring or at least highly incentivizing the adoption or the opt-in from corporates and brands across the geography? Yeah. And I do think before before we jump into that, it's been so important. I think every single time that the government makes a move on this, it really puts a lot of pressure on brands to, you know, basically show that they're better than the government because no one kind of wants to be just doing what the public sector is doing, which is, I suppose, seen in a sense as the, the bare minimum. And on that note, one of the biggest things that's had such an impact is the UK's commitment to net zero by 2050. So that's put a huge yeah, impetus behind brands to develop their own targets, which are more ambitious than the government. So no one that we've come across wants to set a net zero by 2050 target. They want to be better than that. And they want to do it by 2030, 2035, and even kind of 2040 is seen as pretty slow uh, these days. That kind of bigger policy framework has been so important for ratcheting up ambition within the the private sector. And there's lots more to come. We're hearing from the government about things like policy about disclosing deforestation for larger food companies. That's something which, again, will really incentivize or push people to actually look into their supply chains and not just have the food they're purchasing coming from a black box, which has definitely been happening for too long now. And we're not quite at the stage where it's mandatory for products to actually disclose the environmental footprint, things like being in a supermarket, etc. I think we are probably 
five, seven, maybe a little bit more years away from things like that being mandatory. But we definitely get the sense over here that things like that are being spoken about very seriously and are definitely on the policy horizon. There's been lots of uh, discussion around things like a carbon tax, etc. And I, I think year on year, we're just seeing this really snowball in the right direction. And that's really exciting for us as a company to be operating within that evolving uh, policy space. One more question for, for both of y'all before we cap off. It's uh, around the moonshot opportunity heater for food steps. And so I'd love to hear from each of what is the long-term impact potential? What needs to be true? Do you need to add more features to the platform? I, I'd love to hear how, how y'all think about the North Star and mm-hmm. what the impact could be, assuming the stars align. Yeah, so what we really want to see is we want to see the food industry get to net zero emissions as quickly as possible. And we, if we play our cards, we think we could be a major actor, if not the leading platform to allow uh, food companies to do that. There's lots uh, that's gone right so far and, and we think we can keep going um, on that path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're very much kind of scaling up as, as quickly as we can. We're just closing our first funding round at the moment. We've got interest from big food companies to keep going with the work and, and work directly with them. And yeah, I, I think to be honest, as I said before, a lot of this really is a data and a software problem. We're really lucky to have some fantastic people on our team. Some of the, you know, best minds in computer science and sustainability to be solving this problem we're ready to go for it (laughs) and just yeah one thing i would just add is i think the key thing is to get kind of everyone on board so not just looking specifically at one type of business but really going from the suppliers to the end consumer and and that's something that we're yeah that we're thinking about as we go along is how can we get the suppliers on board how can we get the consumers and make sure that everyone's um, part of that journey to net zero in the food um, industry Awesome. And how I every uh, I end every interview, it's around this notion of the idea graveyard, right? One idea that y'all would love to work on if you had the time to do, but for now is just rotting away in your idea graveyard. And so uh, I, I want to pass the mic to y'all. Either that or B, request for startups. Maybe it's not your specific idea, but a problem that you've realized you just don't have the time to work on it. And so just a call to action for some of our listeners to start exploring and diving into a particular area that needs just more people investigating and working on. So I'll let you, either of y'all, you know, come come up to bat with either <laughs> A or B on the bookends. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an amazing question. And it's been a while since I fully let my mind run wild with other ideas because we've got a lot to focus on at the moment. Interestingly, one thing we actually started off working on and, and now we're actually looking to partner with an, with another startup doing this is, is that idea of reaching the consumer more with this information. And I think there really is that piece to, to be done around changing people's kind of hearts and minds about sustainability and improving that carbon literacy. We don't have the time to be developing a consumer app alongside doing our B2B work and our, our B2B software platform. But yeah, I think there's a huge amount that can be done around around engaging consumers there. On a completely separate note, I think one of the biggest challenges is what do we do if we do start to make these changes to the food system? If we do start to reduce carbon, if we do produce food 
more efficiently with better land resources. What are we going to do with that land? And, and what are we going to do about those economies and, and communities that have been built and are very much producing the food that we eat at the moment? And that's something which we're really mindful of is, for example, if we recommend to a company, you shouldn't be buying these green beans from Kenya because they're flown over and, and that's really expensive for carbon. What about those communities that are actually producing that food? And if we do change the food system, as I said, what are we going to do with that leftover land? So I think, I don't know if that's really a fun startup idea. Maybe it's a bit more of a plea for, for someone with some good thinking there. But I, I think there's a lot that needs to be done on a kind of broader level of okay, assuming we actually do start to make these these transitions, how are we going to do that in a just way and in, in a socially responsible way? And yeah, I'd love to hear from anyone who's working on problems like that. Love it. Mm. And Lula, how about yourself? Yeah, so similar. One thing that I've always wanted to do, which is before food steps, and maybe it will happen at some point, was set up my own restaurants. I've always been a big fan of food and also diabetic. So for me, it's always been something that's quite close to my heart. But maybe having something, some kind of, food range or cafe or something where we serve products that are aligned with our kind of environmental guidelines that we've set up but maybe having the profits of that reinvested in the kind of schemes or ideas that Anya was just talking about so having something that's yeah linked to food steps but goes a step further in in the kind of consumer direction so not a particularly original idea in terms of setting up a restaurant but keeping that in tune with the food steps philosophy is definitely something that that's sitting away in my ideas graveyard. I love it. All right, both of you. I'd I love to roll up the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. Thank you so much. Yeah, we've had a fantastic time over the last sort of 18 months or two years since we've been going, uh, speaking to all different kinds of people working in the sustainability and, and food space. So yeah, if the podcast has been of interest, do definitely reach out and we'd love to hear from you. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. All right, y'all. Anya and Lilla, congrats on all of your early success. I hope that this funding round closes with a breeze. I know um, <laughs> that could add some grace. Yeah, uh... <laughs> add some grace to your hair. So I just yeah, it's a, it's gonna be a working weekend. Yeah. But it's okay. <laughs> um, anyways, y'all, so much. A big congrats. I can't wait to cheerlead along the way. And thank y'all for coming on the show. Thanks thank so much you. for having us. And yeah, looking forward to listening to episodes, further episodes. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.